The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Caleb Benjamin, intern at Lawfare, with an episode of Rational Security for October 1st, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled the So Much for That Menendez Rest Stop edition. This week, Anderson, Jurassic, and Rosenstein sat down to discuss the indictment of Senator Bob Menendez, Judge Tanya Chutkin's pending decision on a proposed gag order on former President Donald Trump, the House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on reforming the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, and more. This is Rational Security. Quinta, as our resident New Jerseyan, though I did spend a few years of my early, early childhood there, I feel like you're our real New Jerseyan. What what is your theory of New Jersey? (laughs) It's well, I actually had a conversation with someone who was referencing the I don't even know what he is, historian, sociologist, anthropologist Benedict Anderson's book, Imagined Communities, which is like, you know, how people come up with phenomenal book. Great record. Yes. Good, good book. Um that was suggesting that political corruption is actually part of New Jersey's imagined community. It's an important <laughs> it's an important part of what drives my people. Ever since they first stole that printing press. It has been, <laughs> that's a Benedict Anderson joke for you, for anybody out there. Uh, but yeah. It's all about the newspapers. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yes, so that is that is my explanation. And if you tell us otherwise, we will put a decapitated horse's head in your bed. That was in Los Angeles in the movie, as I recall. <laughs> I claim the movie as my own. So I actually, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't remember. So The Godfather, the, that's not a, The Godfather is a, it's a Long Island crime family, right? Not a New Jersey crime family? I actually realized as soon as I said I just, that, I, just, I don't, I don't remember. I, I mean, think obviously, of it as a New Jersey thing. Godfather 2, the flashbacks are set in New York. Because there's a scene where he like goes over the rooftops, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know either. It's the tri-state area. Other things I don't sure. know. Is it New Jerseyan? Is that how we say that? Yeah, it's New Jersey. New Jerseyite? Or nope. New Jersey? No, Jersey. Nope. New Jersey. It's New Jerseyan. New Jerseyan. That yeah. does not roll. It's off either the New Jerseyan or Hey Asshole. That's the other. Yeah. I, look, I just got to say, I am so excited to ha- be able to incessantly talk about New Jersey for the next, like, I don't know, like three to six months, and people are going to have to listen to me. It's great. Do you want me to tell you about our state monster, which we have? It's not Robert Menendez. Is it is it the gas station pump that is too dangerous for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. For our like, I go off the turnpike. <laughs> no, it's, season a, two, it's the Jersey. It's two. the Jersey Devil. Jersey Devil. That's what yeah. It, is. it lives in the Pine Barrens. It's like a weird goat with wings, and there it is, is it is genuinely it. our official state monster. I don't even know if other states have that. Isn't it also the hockey team? Uh, yes, but that's less important than the official state monster. <laughs> can Minnesota top that? I don't think it can. All I will say, despite my frequent mockery of New Jersey, I make fun of you, Quinta, for being from New Jersey, but that's only because I'm desperately trying to deflect that I'm from the only part of the country that's worse than New Jersey, which Long is Island. Long Island. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here in the IRL studio with my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. 
Fulton in the virtual studio with our third co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. Reunited after a few weeks of separation. It's great to be back with you all. And it feels so good. Exactly. There you go. So we can hear we can hear Alan's dulcet tones all the way from the Midwest. Uh, in a way, we could not the last time we were all together. But it's great to be back with you all. We have had a bit of a week, I would say, in the national security news front. Is that fair to say? It is. It is. It's been something. It's been something. Uh, well, we are excited to have you here with us, listeners, for what we are calling the So Much for That Menendez Rest Stop Edition. Um, <laughs> for anyone who's ever driven down the Jersey Turnpike, saw the recent, I didn't know they added Gandolfini Rest Stop. There's also a John Bon Jovi Rest Stop. Is there a John Bon Jovi Rest Stop? And, and a Walt Whitman Rest Stop. I will have you know. There, we no, have all there no kinds of culture. Rest Stop? Or is he, did he get like a city or a high um, school or something? I'm Googling it right now. They, they just pasted a he picture declined. of his jeans on the flag. He declines to have oh. a rest stop named in his Bruce. honor. Is he too good for a rest stop? Bruce. No, I'm sure that's not why. I don't know why, but that just feels like... Well, there's a Judy Bloom service area. There's a Tony <laughs> Morris. The I Judy Bloom service area is going to be a very introspective rest stop. The Tony Morrison service wow. area. I had no idea. This is amazing. Well, bad news. Bob Menendez, so sorry. <laughs> we fear you may have fallen out of the running, although, you know, we will wait and see, um, because he features probably one of the many stories we are here to talk about with you this week. Our first topic, do as I Menendez says, not as I Menendez do. <laughs> <laughs> that one's hard to say out loud. That was good. It's good. It was good. It's Worth very it. stupid. It's extremely stupid. Uh, that's perfect. <laughs> New Jersey brand. Senator and until recently Chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, was indicted alongside his wife this past week on charges that they accepted money from Egyptian businessmen in exchange for information and favors arising from Menendez, Menendez's official duties and at the behest, potentially, of the Egyptian government. How serious are these charges? Where will they lead? And topic two, dot, 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 with the silver spoon. D.C. Federal District Court Tanya Chutkin is weighing a gag order on former President Trump. <laughs> aimed at, aimed, I thought that was your quick That one was aimed Wait, at a what, what, a what is going on? Is it like the fish oil goes down with the gag silver me, spoon and he has to gag? Silver spoon. Gag me oh, with okay. the silver spoon. I don't know. Does one do that? I don't know. It's just jamming two things together, guys. Is, I'm tired. Is that, is that from Clueless? Gag me with a silver with a spoon. With a spoon, yeah. I feel like it, it might like be Heathers? from Clueless. It's definitely like a Southern California or yeah. California slang thing. I think it's I think it's a not terribly sensitive bulimia reference, if I recall correctly, <laughs> which, oh, which is not great. Yeah. Yes, it is used. It is said in Clueless. You know what could you do? But it's in the it's in it's in the cycle. Clueless, now. great movie. Great movie. Great Austin adaptation. Um, D.C. Federal District Court ta- Judge Tanya Chutkin is weighing a gag order on former President Trump aimed at restraining him from commenting on the proceedings or attacking various officials involved in them in relation to his federal prosecution in D.C. In said D.C. Federal District Court. Trump and his attorneys, meanwhile, see the gag order request as an attack on his First Amendment rights. Who is likely to prevail and what are the broader stakes? And topic three, the forever chore. The House Foreign Affairs Committee is set to hold the latest in a long series of hearings on a topic that has been on Congress's agenda for more than a decade, reforming the 2001 AUMF, that's Authorization for Use of Military Force, for those who may not know, that provides the legal basis for most global counterterrorism operations. But despite near universal agreement about the need for change, progress has been limited. Is there reason to think this time will be different? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So we are recording, as we always do, Wednesday midday, and as we are recording, or maybe just concluded, but a senior New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is being arraigned in New York City on corruption charges uh, for the second time in eight years, which should not be Hell, forgotten. Yes. This, is, this, is not his, this is not his first time at the rodeo. He did plead not guilty. And, and he, he pled not guilty, right? So he is. A, these out. are all allegations, just to be clear. Um, the indictment alleges an impressively brazen scheme of bribery and influence peddling by Menendez and his wife, Nadine. The allegations are kind of very Baroque and kind of too numerous to fully lay out here. But the, the sort of very high level is that um, there's this person, this businessman, uh, Wael Hanna, a U.S. citizen born in Egypt, and he uh, runs or ran um, an import-export business. And in exchange, basically, for putting Nadine Menendez on his payroll for basically like a no-show job, so a fake job, Menendez helped uh, Hana to maintain a monopoly on the import of halal meat from the U.S. to Egypt, which, as you can imagine, um, given Egypt's large population and 
not a lot of arable land and the United States is enormous livestock production uh, was a very, very lucrative deal for Hanna and therefore for Nadine and therefore for Menendez himself. It turns out that Hanna was being assisted by the Egyptian government to make his business as profitable as possible so that he could help support Nadine as much as possible. And just coincidentally, around this time, Menendez was pushing for arms sales and aid to Egypt because Menendez is not just a senator, but he is the head of the Foreign Relations Committee. So he has a incredibly, incredibly powerful role in setting U.S. foreign policy. Besides the fake job for Nadine, Menendez received cash, uh, Mercedes-Benz, and everyone's favorite, straight-up Fort Knox-style gold bullion. What an absolute gangster. And and Googled gold bullion, how much worth, or something that, around those lines, according to the indictment, which I absolutely love, because I don't know how much it's worth either. I, I missed that part. That's amazing. Nor do I, nor am I twice, sure how to spell twice. bullion. Is it spelled like the chicken stock? Is that what we're saying? I think it is. This? I think it's I the think same so. bullion. Yes. But presumably you can't dissolve it in water. Um, well, I, I don't know. Have you tried? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I guess I haven't. <laughs> no, it's spelled, it's spelled differently. There is an okay. extra um, O. In okay. the chicken. Oh, okay. Okay. Good okay. Things we learned. <laughs> so the the entire Democratic establishment in New Jersey, from the governor on down, has called on Menendez to resign, as have many of his colleagues in the Senate, though notably the White House has not yet called on Menendez to resign. So lots to talk about here. Obviously, um, we're gonna go, I'm gonna go to Quinta first. This is bad, right? Because it, it, it seems bad. Is this bad? <laughs> How, how dare you impugn the culture of my people? <laughs> uh, no, yes, this this is this is very bad, and there are so many different levels to it that it's actually I think it's really hard to tease apart. Um, so first off, yes, this is not Menendez's first rodeo. I don't even think it's his second rodeo. There was a very high-profile investigation of him in the early aughts um, by one uh, New Jersey U.S. attorney, Chris Christie. Where have I heard that name before? That ultimately, I think, didn't actually result in anything. Um, but there were corruption allegations on the table. Then, as you mentioned, uh, so he was indicted again in 20 or he was indicted for the first time in 2015 on corruption charges uh, that ended in a hung jury, perhaps in part because in between the indictment and the trial came the Supreme Court's ruling in uh, the McDonnell case having to do with corruption allegations against Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, where the Supreme Court basically, I think it's fair to say, substantially tightened the standard for uh, prosecuting political corruption that makes it in such a way that makes it a lot more difficult for prosecutors to bring these cases. So it is interesting that that same charge on a services fraud was once again is is one of the things that Menendez, uh, his wife, and these uh, they're described in the indictment as the three New Jersey businessmen, which I love, have have been charged with. So I will be interested to see how prosecutors plan to address this McDonald issue. Substantively speaking, the allegations are really bad. I've kind of been keeping an eye on the news stories about the ongoing Menendez investigation for a while because I think it's funny. And I was prepared for this to be, you know, kind of similar to the allegations in the 2015 indictment, which were basically alleging that the senator, you know, took money from a guy who he said he was friends with in order to give that individual favors, um, sort of garden variety allegations of political corruption. This is not that. <laughs> this appears to describe a long-running influence operation by the Egyptian government and Egyptian intelligence services to uh, use Menendez's clout as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to get policy outcomes in their favor. I think the, the most extreme instance is an allegation that Menendez ghostwrote on behalf of the Egyptian government a letter, I believe, requesting a lift on hold to, of aid to Egypt, Scott, if that's right. I believe uh, that's right. Again, he is the chairman of the SFRC. He's ghostwriting this on behalf of the Egyptian government. This is a letter that will be sent to other senators. Just the or opposing a possible hold. As well. Okay, I don't think there thank actually you, thank you. Um, so the the level of brazenness is just astonishing. And there's a really good piece in Lawfare that I would point listeners to by May El Sadani, who's a human rights lawyer uh, who focuses on Middle East and North Africa issues kind of situating this in context of the broader story of the U.S.-Egypt relationship. And Scott, I'm curious for your thoughts on that. But May's point is essentially, you know, this isn't, you know, 
some little country that is not strategically important. This is a major U.S. ally. The U.S. sends hundreds of millions of dollars in aid and weapons to to Egypt. And this is just blatant interference in in U.S. affairs Um, to the extent that I'm actually kind of surprised that the indictment didn't at the very least include, if not a Farah charge, a 951 charge, which is kind of Farah light um, and will be familiar to folks who followed the Mueller investigation closely. I do wonder to what extent just the severity of the allegations and the extent to which they speak directly to Menendez's ability to you know, be SFRC chair has affected the way that other senators and other uh, New Jersey officials have responded to this. Now, to be clear, he would have had to step down as SFRC chair anyway, um, as someone under a felony indictment under Democratic rules. But I do think that the fact that this so directly speaks to allegedly peddling his influence in this important role just really underlines what a serious problem this is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the the, the Futile technical foreign affairs aspects I would add to that that are worth bringing in mind about why Menendez – it's so particularly problematic for Menendez to be doing this. This would be problematic if any senator were doing this, right? Um, you know, they, they're not supposed to be acting on behalf of a foreign corporation, let alone one that pretty transparently appeared to be acting on behalf of a foreign government generally. But when you're the SFRC chair, you have a lot of authority over a number of things. You play a big role in determining the legislative agenda for things that come before your committee. Um, you've got pretty – you know single-handed authority to set that. More importantly, you were involved in the oversight and a lot of notification, determination regarding a whole range of foreign assistance. When it comes to security assistance and certain types of foreign – other for, types of foreign assistance, you actually often have a informal ability to exercise a hold or not exercise a hold, be able to hold it up substantially. This is a part of a handshake agreement the executive branch has with Congress where Congress gives the executive branch very broad authority on the Arms Export Control Act to sell arms and the SFRC chairs get the ability to hold that up if they want to. It is really, really, really wild to have somebody in that position acting on behalf of, again, what seems to be a foreign government. Now, these are all allegations. You have to bear that in mind. Maybe there's some overreach. But it is the sort of allegations that are so dramatic and serious that I have trouble imagining the Justice Department taking it very lightly that they would be leveling these sorts of allegations. Like this is something that they have thought about seriously. Uh, I have no doubt Maine Justice was involved to some extent because I don't think SDNY would kind of freelance something like this. Um, and I'm pretty sure most public corruption cases have to be channeled back to Maine Justice. Maybe you know that uh, better than I do, Alan, but I think they it, do. It, it would be very – I mean it, it, whether they have to be, it would be very surprising if something of this magnitude – there was not pretty close cooperation between the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey and and Maine Justice. I mean especially given the national security's implications of this. I mean you yeah. have to assume that not just public corruption but – and as Steve, the National Security Division would have gotten involved. There's just no way it could have just been done just as a random case. Exactly. So, I mean, I do think it's worth noting, like, the there's also an, an interesting level is the fact that this is coming out of SDNY rather than the oh, District of New right. Jersey. This, this isn't, yeah, that's um, interesting, actually. Yeah, so which I think is interesting. I mean, I don't know why that is the case. I have some guesses, um, one of which is that one of the sort of strands in the indictment involves Menendez's efforts to help select a nominee for U.S. attorney of New Jersey in 2021, who, in his view, would uh, act favorably toward, uh, I think, at least one, maybe more of the other three men who are named in the indictment and who is facing potential federal charges. And so, again, I don't know. SDNY has a reputation for going it alone. I guess the, the, word, the word you're looking for is yoinking other people's cases. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so that term. is that is certainly consistent with that. But I could also see why. So the, the U.S. attorney who was eventually appointed and, and who I should be clear is not alleged to have done anything wrong. Um, rather is alleged to have, you know, sort of batted back Menendez's attempts to influence him. He's I believe he is still the U.S. attorney for New Jersey. So you can kind of see why, you know, even if he recuses, it just creates a weird situation. It might kind of be better for everyone for it to be out of SDNY. Um, again, I don't know. This is a total guess. Um, but I could see that and I could also see Maine Justice getting involved in kind of that coordination. Yeah. No, absolutely. And which one more aspect of, of kind of the foreign policy aspect that really comes in here is that as May lays down this article, Egypt is a major, major foreign assistance partner, one of the biggest, to a level that frankly far outpaces the actual nature of the U.S.-Egyptian relationship. 
And the reason of that is, is because that high level of U.S. foreign assistance and security assistance of both kind of avenues was a part of the terms that led to the normalization of the Egyptian-Israeli relationship back in the 1970s and 1980s. That was a big part of that formula. And it has been sustained since then as part of that normalization connection. It is, for that reason, uh, a kind of point of some contention and some confusion, I think, at times. It's not really clear that the Egyptian government, like, sees this assistance. I think they rely on it. They want it. They are still, still interested in it. But they don't necessarily see it as, like, the conditionality with the relationship with Israel the way that might have been the case 40 years ago or 30 years ago because the idea of Egypt kind of kind of reversing and all of a sudden becoming hostile to the state of Israel again seems kind of farcical. Maybe maybe that's not doing a fair service to how chaotic things can be in the Middle East, but it seems like a, a far cry at this point. But nonetheless, they're a major security assistance and foreign assistance recipient. And Congress, because of human rights concerns, because of the series of coups and, and forcible government transitions we've seen in Egypt over the last decade – has installed a bunch of conditions on a lot of that foreign assistance related to human rights and other things in which the SFRC and the SFRC chair plays a major, major role. So, you know, it's very clear why the Egyptian government would be interested in potentially having somebody in Menendez's position in their corner. It's something that, frankly, you would kind of expect Menendez to be very sensitive about because Egypt is such a sensitive relationship. He is somebody who is very cognizant of the Middle East. Um, he's a very big booster of a U.S.-Israeli relationship. Um, he does a lot of work in the Middle East. Menendez is no stranger to the politics there. To be well aware of this, all of it is just so strange and so brazen. And not least because if you look at the indictment, the timing, the time, basically they're saying he's hatched this scheme with his now wife within a month of being – you know, we're having a hung jury in his last. Well, he, he started trial. dating her. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's just crazy. Like, like I said, absolute gangster. It's wild. <laughs> I gotta say, I I really want to know more about uh, his wife Nadine Menendez. Me too. She she just like she comes out of nowhere and is allegedly part of this just deranged scheme. I tried doing some googling, and the only thing I could find was a, a hour long interview with her. Uh, for a show for Armenian Americans, because her she is Armenian, talking about her family's experience in the Armenian genocide, did not mention anything about her plans to, you know, engage in the halal meat market. So, <laughs> obviously, like we could just do the whole show about this, um, but in the interest of time, I want to kind of focus on on two aspects of this: one, the foreign relations aspect of it, and then the second, sort of what this says about. American politics. So on the foreign relations aspect of this, uh, or maybe the foreign interference aspect of this, and I'm very curious, Scott, in particular, what what you think about this question. What does this say about the ability of the American political system to withstand this sort of influence, corruption, and meddling? I mean, obviously, don't elect ludicrously corrupt politicians like Menendez is a good start. And I guess when they are corrupt, put them in jail, and that presumably will have some deterrent function. But it is just, it is brazen, right? That Egypt, which is just like Egypt needs the United States more than the United States needs Egypt, is doing something that they must have understood could blow up so spectacularly in their faces. And then at the same time, Congress doesn't seem to have any ability or internal ability to sort of resist this. You know, it took the Department of Justice to do it. I mean, it just, it just seems like a very bad comment on, you know, our political system's ability to deal with, you know, forget Russian interference in the 2016 election, just like everyday bribery. You know, I don't, I wonder if that's not overstating it a little bit. I mean, this is a very serious case. It's it's serious allegations. Frankly, if these allegations had been brought to like a Senate ethics body, right, or to the you know Senate Majority Leader, I would think you would see a pretty major action, including a referral to the Justice Department, right? Like the Justice Department seemed to have stumbled across this information first and pursued an investigation using authorities and techniques that Congress just isn't equipped to do on its own, really, right? Uh, Certainly not in these sorts of cases. Um, So it's not surprising it comes through DOJ. And like it's not entirely isolated cases, an exceptional one, but obviously we do have members of Congress engaging in things that uh, look like or sound like corruption. But we see them prosecuted for for it somewhat regularly, right? Like we've seen other congressmen being prosecuted and investigated for these sorts of things. Sometimes they end up in ethics violations. Sometimes they end up in actual criminal prosecution. And so, I, you know, I think these things do happen. I don't think they're as wildly rampant. 
as you know, you may be led to believe and as people who are highly critical of Congress and, and strongly inclined to reject anyone who disagrees with their views as corrupt may be inclined to, to allege uh, rising out of incidents like this. So it's a serious violation. But I also am not sure the United States isn't better about it. I actually think the United States is frankly better on public corruption uh, than a lot of countries are, um, particularly in the Middle East, especially in the Middle East. That's, an easy, that's a low bar. Um, but in a lot of other parts of the world, we, we tend to take it actually fairly seriously. And notably, like, that's one of two big factors, I think, leading to the fact that we're actually seeing a pretty strong democratic re- reaction to these indictment, right? Um, you know, while Senate Majority Leader Schumer hasn't has, has was a little more wishy-washy, he said basically he should have a stay in court. A lot of other senators and a lot of the New Jersey delegation have come out and said it's time to resign, Bob. It's time to get out of here, and that's a that's a pretty strong reaction. I think it underscores the fact the Democratic Party, particularly because of its stance regarding the former Trump administration, really is taking these public corruption issues very seriously. They see it as part of their political appeal and they're pursuing it. Coincidentally, also unlike the last time Menendez was brought up on charges, there's a Democratic governor in New Jersey, meaning they don't have to worry about compromising their Senate majority um, because they're going to get a Democratic uh, appointee to finish Menendez's term. The one thing I will know about the Egyptian side of this is that this makes a lot of sense from the Egyptian perspective. The thing to know about Egypt that people may not understand is that the Egyptian government and the Egyptian military in particular owns everything in Egypt. They run everything. So it's, it is not a military organization. It is a cartel that controls huge swaths of the Egyptian economy, including, I'm sure, halal meats, obviously, uh, that has all sorts of implications in all sorts of sectors with nothing related to defense, uh, or nothing related to what you would think of as the government sector. And because of that, it has endemic corruption throughout it because a lot there are a lot of these fiefdoms, people trading off the strong government role, um, this idea that soldiers and colonels and generals own big like slices of industries that are then paid by the Egyptian government for their services at, at kind of questionable rates. It is baked into kind of the Egyptian system. So it doesn't not make sense that they would see this as something that is kind of reasonable. And, and it does seem like from my understanding, the timeline is that – the scheme really began with the halal meat importer without as clear involvement of the Egyptian government. And the Egyptian government kind of stepped in later when they gave – basically the, they gave the importer a uh, monopoly off that industry, saved his business. And then all of a sudden a lot of this began to lean much more in the government direction. So this was kind of a tested avenue of influence that the Egyptian government was kind of able to co-op, which I suspect made them a little more willing – than they would have been to just kind of try and seek to establish this from the outset. You know, it's a problematic case, but I, but I wouldn't overread the significance of it for that reason. So, Scott, one thing you mentioned was that one of the reasons that Menendez is being treated now by his Democratic colleagues more harshly than he was eight years ago is because today there's a Democratic governor who would replace Menendez with presumably a Democratic temporary senator um, to fill that vacancy, whereas eight years ago it was Chris Christie, a Republican. And you know, I think this does raise in some circles, you know, certainly probably for Republicans, but also for, you know, a lot of Democrats and centrists and just people who like good government, a little bit of a cynicism, um, or a little bit of a sense of, of cynicism here that, well, now it's politically convenient for the Democrats to cut Menendez loose, even though eight years ago, he was hardly a paragon of, of good government. Um, and it's notable, I think also that even today, when, you know, they could just replace with another Democrat, you know, you still have Chuck Schumer being pretty wishy-washy. You still don't have Biden out with a statement. I mean, you know, why aren't the Democrats? I mean, one way you could look at this is the Democrats are losing an opportunity to make this much more of an intense push for sort of good government and further try to distinguish themselves from the from the Republicans. Um, you know, m- maybe there's still a little bit of kind of hangover from when the Democrats convinced and sort of pressured Minnesota Senator Al Franken to resign, um, a resignation that I think many Democrats then sort of later regretted ultimately. But, you know, Menendez is obviously being charged with acts uh, far, far more serious, I think it's fair to say, uh, than Al, Al Franken was. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, maybe I'll ask you, Quinta, sort of what, what, what do you think the Democratic response says about the state of the Democrats and whether they really are the, the party of good government? I mean, I, th- I think it's a lot better than the Republican response. Well, yeah, but like that's like the lowest bar imaginable. Sure. That's no, no, no. That's definitely true. Look, I, I have actually been pleasantly surprised I mean, I think part of all of this is that New Jersey politics is a bit of a blood sport and there's going to be kind of a brawl for the open Senate seat. Um, So that will be fun. Congressman Andy Kim, who's a Democrat uh, who flipped a red district in the southern part of the state, is says he's going to be running for the seat. Um, So we'll see where that goes. Um, But overall, I, I have been 
pleased. Cory Booker, the other New Jersey senator who uh, stood by Menendez last time around, uh, this time way little time and throwing him under the bus. We've now seen, I think Chuck Schumer has been noncommittal, but uh, Senator Dick Durbin, who's the number two Democrat in the Senate, the whip, um, just put out a statement this morning saying that Menendez should resign. There are a pretty hefty number of Democratic senators who have said that he should step down. Uh, Tom Cotton, weirdly, said that he should not step down. So I don't know what the thinking there is. Super, super, super troll. Yeah, right. I, like, thanks, buddy. But anyway, so I, I do think that that really coming out in force, you know, it could be stronger. Yes. But I've been pleased with how strong it has been. That said, you know, ultimately, the only person who can decide whether or not he's going to go is Menendez himself. And um, I wouldn't be hugely surprised if he stuck it out in trying to negotiate a plea deal. Quinta, just to add a little bit to that, in in one sense, you're right. But there is, of course, an additional way in that the Senate can expel him. Right. And that's something that you know, if the Republicans want to get behind uh, this, the Democrats, you know, there's probably enough for the, the two thirds expulsion vote. So it's not entirely up to Menendez. I mean, two thirds is a lot. Like, look, if they want to expel him, be my guest. I do not like the guy. I would be happy to see him gone. I just find it hard to imagine they could get to that number. Yeah. You know, I, I do think there is an institutional interest here. And I suspect this is the Schumer-Durbin split we're seeing. Like, I think Durbin... I, I suspect their positions on this are coordinated where Schumer feels obligated, perhaps because, you know, he is the leader of the whole Senate at the moment, perhaps because he's really channeling a little more of an institutional view to say, look, we have to reserve some flexibility to say just because somebody's indicted doesn't mean they have to immediately resign. There may be cases where we don't want that to happen. Like the last time Menendez was indicted for political reasons, there may be cases where it's not warranted, right? We live in an era with a lot of allegations of political prosecution. And while I don't think most of them are warranted or substantive, um, you know, it's a fear that lurks in the background, I think, for people. And so something that they, they might be in the back of the mind to say, well, we don't want to come out with like a hard fixed line. I do think the Franken case does kind of haunt them a little bit on this, um, where they, uh, you know, ended the career of somebody who was, was a colleague and kind of successful by some people. I, you know. But like, it's not like Tina Brown is a bad senator. That's a, I don't know. It's always a weird. Well, I mean, but people, I mean, it is a case where like that state has has had political trouble since then. Like and like, you know, you're hurting Alan. a political figure. Yeah, exactly. Alan, you tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> the key point here, though, I think is like this is not cost free. Like this is actually expensive. Like you could see a different reaction, which is not unlike a reaction we see among Republican – a lot of members of the Republican Party around former President Trump, right, where you could rally around, accuse this of corruption or misunderstanding. It's a little harder when it's the president of your own party but uh, who was running the executive branch. But you could still do it and rally around and say, hey, no, we, we don't think there's a reason for him to resign. You know, but that's not what's happening. Uh, and I actually think it's a sign that they're willing to accept some costs here. Menendez is a very well-established guy. He's a good fundraiser. A lot of New Jersey politicians, uh, you know, look to him for support on the Democratic side um, and for, you know, a network that he's helped build. And they're not going to have that now. Um, that's costly. And the fact that they're willing to get ahead of the, you know, be ahead of it and take those positions, I think, is telling. And the rest of the Democratic caucus is not going to get ahead of the New Jersey delegation. So they were going to make the decision first. And I think now you're going to see more people kind of follow in their wake. The last thing I would uh, say on this, something worth bearing in mind, is that they also immediately removed him from the SFRC chair. That actually happened last week, um, which I didn't realize at the time. Um, but there's an agreement at the very end of last week that to remove the SFRC chair may have even been voluntary. I actually like, haven't seen a clear account of that. And some of the accounts suggest it might have been. Removing him from his committee positions and from his chairmanship in particular, that doesn't mitigate a lot of the damage, but it takes a lot of the damage away. Like it, it is really problematic for him to be staying there. The fact that there was never any serious consideration that he wasn't going to step down I think is itself pretty telling. Part of that's the rule that Quinta mentioned earlier about the felony indictment. But the Democratic Party has that rule for a reason in regards to its senators. I don't know if Republicans have a similar rule or not. They might. But the fact that they stuck by it, implemented it immediately, and no one's arguing about it I think is, again, pretty telling. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, going from one problematic politician to another that we've already mentioned uh, just now, let us talk about former President Trump and the situation he is facing in the district, federal district court in our beloved District of Columbia, not miles from where Quinta and I are sitting right now. We have seen a series of briefings, not yet exhausted. I think the final reply brief is actually due on Saturday before Judge Chutkin. This is the judge who is overseeing the prosecution of former President Trump by special counsel Jack Smith um, for a variety of conspiracy charges relating interference with the 2020 election and related acts seeking to have a gag order imposed on former President Trump by the special counsel. Uh, We've now seen a response by Trump's attorneys that was filed earlier this week. And it's it's a pretty exceptional act, not unprecedented, but unique. Uh, In part, that's it's unique because of the unique nature of the defendant in this case. You know, frankly, a lot of times you don't really need an express order to not smack talk the other side and judges because criminal defendants are too worried about what the consequences will be for them if they do that, uh, of alienating the judge and alienating people. Former President Trump doesn't seem to have that problem, uh, nor do many many of his supporters. Special counsel Jack Smith has come forward and made a request that I think a lot of us thought was going to come sooner and maybe come in the Mar-a-Lago trial and other trials that started before this trial, saying we want an order in place that says former President Trump should not speak about events in the trial or proceedings substantively and specifically should avoid saying things that attack or will encourage uh, attacks or potential violence towards people involved in the proceeding. That's the judge uh, who he has attacked and uh, said is biased against him and part of a kind of broad effort to put him down, led by Democrats um, against prosecutors, against other people involved, and particularly against witnesses who might be intimidated into changing or declining to cooperate uh, in their testimony. Former President Trump has now responded and said essentially all this is protected by the First Amendment. This is all a First Amendment violation. And I'll say, you know, they're kind of putting the strongest arguments forward and emphasizing the constitutional argument because I think they're clearly signaling we're going to try and appeal this. And, you know, I think they would have to do it through a writ of mandamus, I suspect, which is like a pretty high bar, a very high bar in the D.C. Circuit in particular. Um, but they would essentially are going to try and appeal this and put pressure on the court. And it feeds into potentially some delay because it's going to take time away to resolve that matter. I think they could probably go on forward with a lot of pretrial proceedings without resolving it, honestly. But they it feeds into this broader effort of trying to, frankly, frankly try and litigate as much as you can to eat up as much energy, take up as much time uh, and delay the proceedings. I kind of suspect that was a factor that was a reason why the special counsel didn't pursue this earlier in other litigation or here because they just didn't want to stick, suck the resources and things away. But – in this case, certain things they appear to have done have just gone too far. So, Alan, let me start with you on this. You know, how do you react to these gag orders? What do you what do you think about these respective arguments? Um, it does special counsel Jack Smith have the best of the argument or not? And in particular, I'll say the one thing that's really interesting. I talked about this with Roger Parloff, our kind of one of our, our kind of lead court watchers here at Lawfare, and our on our. I'll give a plug here. Our weekly Thursdays, 4 p.m. Eastern time, live uh, conversations about all the events ongoing in the Trump trials. That happens every Thursday for Patreon supporters. You can hear it on the podcast or on YouTube separately. Um, but come live as a Patreon supporter and you get to ask questions. We were talking about this proceedings. And here is the point that like the case law on this is not super tight. Now, part of that is because, again, really unique situation type of defendant here. But the prior gag orders tend to be about lawyers. They tend to be fairly narrowly tailored, tend to address very specific issues, nothing quite this broad or comprehensive. Uh, And and so it's not on super all fours footing in terms of the case law. There's no case law saying it's not available, but it's it's not the strongest in terms of a clear precedent. How does that impact a case here? How is Judge Chutkin in particular likely to look at this? Yeah, this is super messy. And it's super messy, not just for all the reasons that you just described, but for an additional reason that I think is really important context that we always have to keep very close to mind when we're thinking about anything Trump does in these lawsuits, which is Trump's theory of the case is that he will become elected in 2024 and he will pardon himself or he will have the Department of Justice 
dismiss this case or whatever the you know however he 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 does it he is not substantively fighting these charges and that's really really important to understand because that is unique um in american history and that completely screws up the normal kind of calculations that are at play in the criminal justice system i mean you have an actor who is explicitly not even not following the rules but is just playing a different game than what the game is meant within how the game is meant to be played, which is that the point of this pretrial process is to set the stage for a trial in which both sides can present their factual and legal arguments and a jury of, you know, the defendant's peers can in an unbiased and untainted way evaluate that. And Donald Trump doesn't care about that at all, right? That's like not remotely his goal here. Um, And so, you know, this on the one hand, makes his arguments against the gag order much less powerful because he's not a good faith actor. On the other hand, it makes his arguments against the gag order in some ways more powerful because he's turning his opposition to the gag order into, in a sense, a core First Amendment protected political activity, which is running for president. And it's just super messed up. Like, and there's no obvious way of, you know, completely squaring the circle, right? Earlier in the in this trial, Judge Chutkin at some point said, you know, the interests of campaigning must must uh, 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 bend or whatever the the verbiage was, you know, to the interests of the orderly administration of justice. And like, she's probably right about that. But um, Trump is very, very cleverly identifying a tension in the system between running trials in a buttoned up way, which hugely limits everyone's ability to speak freely. And on the other hand, sort of the free and raucous and open political process that the First Amendment is meant to protect. And and he's magnifying the contradictions, right, Uh, as as it were. You know, as to who has the better argument, look, I think at the end of the day, the special counsel still has the better argument because Trump is such a ridiculous chaos monster here, right? Um, And just the stuff he says every day on Truth Social, um, which, you know, now that he's not on Twitter, I think gets less play, but is just completely unhinged, is orders of magnitude beyond what any judge would tolerate in any other case, forget the existence of a protective order. I mean, not only is he fomenting violence against the judge, he's also calling for General Milley's execution, right? General Milley, who, you know, as the joint chief, uh, as the chairman of the joint chiefs, you know, during and up to and after January 6th, um, may very well be a material witness in in the government's case. And so, uh, you know, I, I do think that some sort of protective order is going to be is is going to have to happen and the problem is how do you draw one that is sufficiently narrow enough and i think that's the real problem you know the protective order that the government has proposed is pretty short and basically just says don't say anything that could materially prejudice the trial but the problem is that like in a trial as unique as this what does that even mean because of course what it means to materially prejudice a trial in part already includes some consideration of the first amendment implications of this being a public trial. You know, the other thing I would say is, you know, the government isn't just doing this because it wants to make its own life easier in prosecuting Trump. I think actually a big part of this is that the government wants to, and this is maybe three-dimensional chess, but I think someone on Jack Smith's team has to be thinking about this. If Trump so poisons the jury pool by saying mean things about DC and DC jurors, which is basically what he's going to do, and then the DC jury convicts him, Trump will then turn around and he will say, I did not get a fair trial, right? And as insane as that's, you know, argument may sound, right, he will have that argument. And so, you know, a lot of people don't appreciate that a lot of what prosecutors do, especially in federal cases, is they try to make sure that the defendant actually gets as fair of a trial as possible, even if it in the short term makes it more difficult for the prosecution, because what they want to avoid at all costs is a ineffective assistance of counsel claim on the back end, right? Or some claim that the jury pool was tarnished. And so there's actually some trying to protect Trump from himself, which again, would make sense if Trump's goal was to avoid being convicted. But again, that's not Trump's goal. And that's what makes this whole thing nuts. I mean, I think what we're seeing is Trump bringing to criminal court the same tactic that he's used again and again and again, right? I mean, he he did exactly the same thing to the Mueller investigators. He would attack them and then essentially say, how could they be, you know, um, unbiased in investigating me <laughs> when they're so politically sensitive? You know, they're, they're so they've been at the center of this political firestorm, which, of course, they were because of what he did. This kind of like stop hitting yourself approach um, is something that is very, very familiar to him. 
and was always something that Jack Smith was going to have to navigate. Mueller attempted to navigate it by simply not saying anything at all. Jack Smith's team has taken a somewhat different approach um, in terms of, you know, uh, filing documents that are a little more, uh, show a little more of their cards. I think it is certainly interesting that they chose to have this fight now and here. As as you both pointed out, I, I don't know why that is. It suggests to me that they, they must have some kind of end game here, right? Because the nightmare scenario for me is that this ends up in a situation where, you know, we're asking the court for a mandamus order. We're asking him to be, you know, the condition he's saying he's violated the conditions of his release and he needs to be tossed in jail, right? Which sounds insane, but if it were anyone else, <laughs> these things probably already would have happened. And so I assume that there is some kind of end game here on the part of Smith's team in terms of, you know, how they're gaming out their their moves. I don't know what that is because it strikes me as an extremely delicate line to walk. Can we agree on on that on the jailing point? Just as a quick thing, I mean, it, am I right to think that if Chutkin grants this motion for a, a protective order or, or any kind of protective order, implicit in that is her willingness to put Trump in jail? I don't I, think so. Really? Because I just I don't see how. I mean, I I just don't see how she could do because she, Trump will violate it. Like she knows, she must know to a moral certainty that he will violate this. And if she does not then put him in jail, that's it. She has lost control of this trial. And and maybe that's why she doesn't grant the order. I mean, I actually think that's part of the reason why it's likely that she's going to grant a more, a more, even more tailored order. And I don't think this order is actually like super overbroad on its face by any stretch of the imagination, but even more tailored than what the special counsel has asked for here. I think this would be enforced, correct me if I'm wrong, this would be enforced through contempt, right? And so it would be serious. You could level financial pen- penalties, uh, though if I'm looking – I was Googling this and I think it's actually fairly limited, the financial penalties, although you can do it multiple iterations of financial penalties and maybe add up to a level that will bother Donald Trump. The other alternative is you can put people in jail for a, a kind of constrained period, uh, I think usually up to six months. So, you know, and again, you might have multiple violations of contempt, right, that might stack that. I think it's going to be really hard to put – former President Trump in jail during while he's a candidate ongoing presidential election. After the election ends, all bets are off. But I think it's really, really hard. I think they'd worry about constitutional issues. I think what she has to do is she has to draw really clear red lines and then say if you cross these red lines and make them be hyper-defensible red lines, that's where she starts imposing those major penalties. Lesser penalties, financial penalties, I think she can be a little more generous with and say, look, you're doing something that clearly violates whatever guidelines I've issued. Don't do it again. And if you do it again, I'm going to have to come at you with something bigger. Then if Trump does that three times, then maybe she says, all right, now maybe I'm willing to put him in jail. But it is a threat that's way down a chain of reactions than uh, something that's going to be the immediate penalty, which it might be in another case with a more conventional defendant. I think it has to be that way. I think with the order you're going to get for this reason is going to be something focused on, I suspect, witnesses and jurors about not – basically not talking about them at all. Uh, in the context of the trial. Other things like that, like, you know, it's hard not to talk about the trial when you don't talk about the judge, when you don't talk about court proceedings. I think you can say you can't do anything that threatens harm against them or that is inflammatory towards them. Disparaging, which is kind of the other adjective that they act for in the order, I suspect is like a little too close to just being critical. But, you know, witnesses and jurors are such a protected categories of people. I think she'll be more willing and be more confident that she can install sharper limits there. And Trump's conduct, I think, has pushed the envelope enough even in those regards that it's a reasonable concern. I I think that is very, very well put. I I just want to say that, like, I can't stop thinking about how this is not that different than when I deal with my two and a half year old toddler. And it's like, how many times are you going to count to three before you get the 62nd time out? And I will say my my toddler, who never, nevertheless, despite being two and a half, seems to have more impulse control than Donald Trump. But you still get into these sorts of like, how precise am I going to make my requirement? And how many times am I going to, you know, count to three before I ultimately give you a timeout? But at some point, like, if you're not going to, if you're not willing to do the timeout, they learn, like, they're smart. They, they, toddlers and Donald Trump are really good at sniffing out weakness. Yeah. I mean, he knows he has strong leverage. He has a strong hand here and he's going to play it to the hilt. And I do think she has to, you know, 
put her foot down and be willing to do things to punish him. But I think she has to be very strategic about it. And jailing is going to be something she really has to build a record for before she takes that step. So we're going to see a lot of back and forth between her and Trump before they get to that point, I suspect. If, if she does jail him, she should at least let him take one or two stuffed animals in. It only seems fair. <laughs> <laughs> Look, t- timeout rules have to apply. Well, let's let's go back to the first branch of government for our, our final topic. It's Groundhog Day and the House Foreign Affairs Committee is holding a hearing on AOMF reform, uh, just like they have done during so many congressional sessions in the past. Scott, what's happening? Will anything actually happen? Will the AOMF ever be repealed or amended uh, before the heat death of the universe? Do you do you get like a tingly sensation? Like so, any, like anywhere where you are, like if Congress is just an AMF reform, you're like, ah, I have to go. I'm I do called. hear a signal call. Uh, yeah, it usually is is when I pop up an op ed, op ed about the Iraq uh, AMF, which I have one coming out in Foreign Policy Magazine uh, today or tomorrow. So keep an eye out for that, folks, uh, about that aspect of this broader issue. It, yeah, it is. It's this hearing is kind of a unique revisitation of a couple of issues. We've seen an almost identical hearing happen in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Twice now, I think, actually. Uh, Once in 2021, once in 2022, if I'm recalling correctly. I may have the timing off a little bit about that off on that. In a similar context, both times it was regarding debates around legislation aimed at repealing the 2002 AUMF, which is a authorization that was used to invade Iraq. But the context of this is that there's also this much bigger, much more complicated debate around the 2001 AUMF, which is used to legally justify all sorts of U.S. counterterrorism operations around the world relating to al-Qaeda and associated groups. That is more problematic because the 2002 AUMF is not – that was relating to Iraq – is not actively used, relied on exclusively for any ongoing military operations. The 2001 AUMF very much is and is used for all sorts of military operations. So reforming it means you have to get into, well, which of these operations do we want to keep doing? Which ones do we don't? Where do we blur the line? Uh, And it's just a much more complicated debate picture. What we've seen happen is that the 2002 AUMF, the potential of cutting it and, and repealing it has been on Congress's books for multiple years now. We actually for years saw this process where the House, Democratic-led House of the last few years, would include a – either pass a freestanding or usually both, pass a freestanding repeal provision and then also include it in the National Defense Authorization Act of every year. And then inevitably the Senate version of the NDAA would not include that measure. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee for whatever reason would often not bring up the parallel freestanding measure, although in some cases the committee did have voted out finally in the last Congress and it actually just never got a floor vote. And because of that, the Senate would prove to be the last obstacle that was never jumped to repeal the 2002 AUMF. That is actually flipped now in this Congress where the Senate last March voted something like 67 to 22, I believe, 67 to 23, to repeal the 2002 Iraq AUMF and actually the 1991 Gulf War AUMF, which is still on the books but less of a concern and has passed that measure. And now it's been sitting with the House for six or seven months. Kevin McCarthy has said numerous times this is going to get a vote. That doesn't mean it's actually going to get a vote at any point. Oh, Kevin. I know. Exactly. Uh, although Chuck Schumer actually is guilty of the same sin during the last Congress. He said the freestanding Senate measure after it got out of SFRC was going to get a vote and it never actually did before the end of the year. They basically ran out of time. Floor time. This is one of those moments where you realize floor time is actually a very valuable commodity in both chambers, more so in the Senate than the House arguably, but really in both chambers. Uh, and you know things sometimes that even they commit to bring to the floor don't have the time at the end of the year to actually get a vote. And that might happen to this measure again here. What we understand, what we hear rumors of happening is that there is resistance from kind of uh, more conventional, what some might call hawkier elements of the Republican Party to this particular repeal measure. I suspect that includes to some extent um, Mike McCall, who's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, um, who has been skeptical of repeal efforts in the past. And McCarthy might be hesitant to overrule them and is basically there's now this kind of working group headed in part by Ken Buck, a kind of uh, member of the Freedom Caucus, but a somewhat more a kind of weirdly independent member of the Freedom Caucus um, who feels strongly on these measures. He and a couple other members of the House are involved in this effort to do all sorts of to AUMF reform, to combine the 2002 repeal measure in with a broader conversation about 2001 AUMF and to try and do them side by side. I think that is wildly unrealistic. Uh, The 2001 AMF has been debated for a decade and a half. 
Lots of proposals have gone out there, some of which I've been involved in, some of which other people have been involved in, about different ways you could reform it. There's widespread agreement on reform, but there's no agreement on what a replacement measure would look like. And to get there, to get there with enough votes in the House and the Senate is going to require a whole lot of effort and, frankly, probably like a whole lot of steering from the executive branch um, in terms of what the, where their actual equities lie. And, and there's just not enough time or political energy to make that happen um, probably in this Congress, I suspect. I could be pleasantly surprised and wrong about that, but I doubt it. Maybe you could get consensus around something like a 2001 AUMF repeal measure that would repeal it four years from now and kick the can down the road and put on another – Congress. But I actually think that would be a hugely progressive step because it would force this conversation that otherwise is very easy for people to avoid. But what's happening instead is that the 2002 AUMF repeal, which has widespread bipartisan support, still cannot get a vote or even out of the House Foreign Affairs Committee to match the Senate vote. And there's a real risk that that's going to leave the 2002 AUMF on the books yet again, despite there being, by the numbers, enough majority votes in both chambers to repeal it. Uh, And by the way, the repeal has the support of the Biden administration as well. So there's not going to be any opposition there. So I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you think the impending government shutdown makes this more likely, less likely, or just who knows? It just adds just a bunch of uncertainty to this. I, I you know, any sort of meaningful uh, actual reform of the 2001 AUMF is going to require so much bandwidth that I, I don't think it really makes a difference because that's not going to happen in whatever timetable table the government shutdown will be resolved one way or another. It just certainly takes oxygen out of the room for all sorts of other issues, and that's a concern. It's also just representative of the difficulty that McCarthy has corralling different elements of his coalition. We usually associate that with like the more conservative House Freedom Caucus, most of whom are actually supporters of repeal in this case, along with Democrats, uh, majority Democrats, not all Democrats. But that same logic might apply to, you know, the more conventional conservative hawkish wings Republican Party as well if this is an issue they really want to dig in on, which it might be. I kind of doubt it, but it might be. Um, and so if if McCarthy can't corral people around something like government shutdown with a real forcing mechanism, it suggests that it's unlikely they're going to get any sort of consensus on moving forward on AUMF reform, something where there's no forcing mechanism around it, at least not yet, unless somebody enacts some sort of sunset provision, and where views wildly differ across different members of the Republican caucus, let alone Congress as a whole. Well, I'm going to I'm going to say this in the Maximilian Sandieri way and you can tell me why I'm wrong. Please. I'm going to I'm going to channel Benjamin Wittes. Does this mean that the AUMF doesn't matter if everyone agrees that someone should do something about it and everyone agrees kind of what they should do, but nothing happens? Is that just because, you know, I have a bunch of stuff at the bottom of my to do list that I've been needing to do for like two years and I just haven't gotten around to it because I'm busy? Like, does it mean that this just is no longer of significance, which is a weird thing to say about a pair of authorizations for the use of force that have had such enormous significance in recent American history? I mean, in other words, is the AUMF like the backseat of my Subaru Outback, (laughs) specifically the one underneath my child's car seat, which is, I should fix, I should fix, I should clean but am I really ever going to do it? Probably not. Not until he goes Probably to college. Uh, you know, <laughs> honestly, it, it is it is that sort of item, the 2001 AMF. And, and it's because – and it's got a problem because there's kind of problematic dynamics and political dynamics around it in terms of the priorities of, of folks involved on all sides of the issue. And a lot of my friends who are involved in kind of the more reform and more constraint, restraint-oriented camp, uh, who I work with a lot on these issues and actually agree with on this particular one more strongly than a lot of others, um, I'm sure are not going to like this, about, but it, this is how I kind of view it. You know, you've got a lot of people who really want to engage in what they call AUMF reform, but what they really mean is we want to f- change what the United States is doing militarily overseas, right? We want to shift to a much more restrained global military posture, and AUMF reform is a legal mechanism for doing that. But that's conflating two issues. One is installing a more accountable, more effective legal authorization that would allow Congress to exercise oversight and have input into decisions that are made, which right now it really doesn't. 2001 AUMF is a pretty open-ended carte blanche authorization the way the executive branch has come to use it. On the other hand, you have lots of people who might say, well, I actually support most of what the United States is currently doing overseas. And that's actually probably the majority of members of Congress. Like Congress keeps appropriating money. They're not unaware of what the military is doing overseas. There's points of friction and there's things sometimes when the executive branch does unexpected things that catch Congress by surprise. Like when we had several special forces operators killed in Niger operations a few years ago that members of Congress said they didn't know about. They actually got notifications about it, but it was the scope of activity was a little unclear about what U.S. soldiers were involved in there. 
Th those are legitimate points of friction, but the bulk of these things most members of Congress are kind of okay with. The real threat of the AUMF is what if a president really goes off the rails and starts doing something dramatic and weird with it um, that we don't we don't support. And there are signs that that has gotten close to happening at times and kind of maybe arguably has happened. But, uh, you know, without congressional consultation, that should be a concern for Congress as an institution. But the people who feel strongest about this issue are the people who either really, really want the status quo and want to keep operations happening and don't want to weaken any basis for them and so resist any sort of repeal or people who really don't like those operations and only want to see reform and change on a basis that radically changes what's currently happening on the ground – and there's not enough support or people meeting in the middle and certainly not the most motivated people involved to move this forward to say, let's install some guardrails, some procedural safety checks so Congress can have a role in this. But we're not going to revisit that much the scope of what's currently happening, right? There's that, that's not willing to disconnect the accountability mechanism question from the substantive policy debate. And like that's the only way I really think you could get to yes on a lot of this stuff, at least in a sort of readingful time frame. And it doesn't seem like there's – people very motivated to do that. Um, maybe that will change. Maybe we'll get there, but I'm not sure. The one thing I will say is that's really frustrating about this. The 2002 AMF doesn't have any of these problems. The one thing the 2002 AMF does, though, and it's substantive and it's important and people overlook this, is that the way it's been interpreted by the Obama administration, Trump administration is it leaves a huge door open for any sort of war involving Iraq. And we've had several of them in the last few years, in case people haven't noticed. Three, by my count. I've been involved with two of them. Uh, it, it is a, a pretty – the way it's become to be interpreted, it says essentially any threat to the stability of Iraq or any terrorist threat emanating from Iraq falls under the scope of the 2002 AMF. It, that's why it was involved in the Soleimani strike, where it's one of the justifications for those strikes, not the only one. They also relied on Article 2 involved with that. And it, it's a really big problem when you have Iran doing what it does in Iraq, where it – actually does actively undermine the stability of Iraq, right? Now, I don't think most people in Congress want the United president to go to war with Iran. But by the way they interpret the 2002 AMF, they have an argument. And that's a problematic one. And if Congress wants to keep the president from doing that, they need to repeal that law. It's very clear. It's been on the – people have been saying this executive branch does not hide that that's how they interpret this law. It's quite clearly on the books. And yet they, Congress just doesn't seem to be able to get itself around to take that step. And that's a really important step that I would like to see come out of this Congress. I still think it's possible. It could happen. Um, but I'm worried it's going to fall on the wayside again just as it has the last few Congresses. I, I will say I, I should log roll one other thing. While I wrote this foreign policy piece, which I do encourage reading and I appreciate them running it, it is based in part on a very, very long deep dive in 2002 AMF I did for Lawfare in November um, that uh, I, I tried to do a kind of an authoritative treatment of the 2002 AMF, how it's been used and understood. Uh, and I think it – I got as close as – Anybody's gotten so far, although correct me if I'm wrong, if somebody says something better, point it my, my way. Uh, so be sure to check that as well. All right. Well, folks, we are out of time today, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what did you bring for us this week? So um, this, this may be the most professory object lesson I've ever uh, offered, but uh, I am for my object lesson recommending a trilogy of books called the Dear Committee Trilogy. Um, also known as the Fitker Trilogy by Julie Schumacher, who is a professor of creative writing at my very own August institution, the University of Minnesota. Uh, the first book she published in um, uh, a few years ago called Dear Committee Members. And then there's uh, two more, The Shakespeare Requirement, and most recently, what I'm reading right now, The English Experience. And they are incredibly funny, biting, but in their own way, quite heartfelt satires of academia. Um, Dear Committee Members is entirely just a series of memos from a curmudgeonly English professor at a large Midwestern state school. And it is one of the funniest things I have ever read. Like, like thought I might injure myself with how hard I was laughing. All three books are great, but even if you're not an academic, go read Dear Committee Members. And I challenge you not to come very close to wetting yourself. And then you can read the next two. They're really good books. All right, Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I would like to recommend a court document, specifically Judge Arthur Engeron's ruling ordering the dismantling of a number of Trump's businesses as part of partial summary judgment granted to the New York Attorney General in the civil suit over Trump's, uh, let's say, erratic valuations of his own it, it's not. It's not erratic. It's just that it changes with his moods and with yes. his self-conception. So, so, <laughs> Markets are fluid. Things are moving. So one of my favorite Demand, parts of the supply. order yeah, is where the judge uh, 
points out that Trump's defense team said that calculating the square footage of a space is inherently subjective. (laughs) (laughs) I miss that. (laughs) Like, yeah, sure. I I also live in a 10,000 foot apartment. Honestly, Um, if you read the Zillow rating on my house, that's probably about right. (laughs) uh, But there's a point where, so so of course, so this this, uh, is over an investigation brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James alleging that Trump essentially would systematically overvalue his properties and assets um, in order to get good uh, interest rates and investments um, and would systematically undervalue them when it came time for things like taxes. Uh, The judge was not impressed with Trump's argument, hence the grant of of partial summary judgment in in James's favor, um, and ordered uh, essentially, it's what seems to be the dismantling of a number of Trump entities, which doesn't mean that the sort of whole Trump empire is gone, but it does mean that a number of these entities would be gone if, if this ruling is upheld um, and that Trump, I think, would be limited in his ability to do business in the state of New York, which, given that he's based in New York, is a pretty substantial hit. There are a lot of little gems of the judge just expressing complete disgust uh, with with Trump's legal team. For example, there's a footnote uh, that says Donald Trump and his lawyers are not sanctions neophytes because they, they were sanctioned in this order. This is not their first rodeo, <laughs> which is a, truly an understatement. Uh, my personal favorite thing that Trump did, according to the judge, is overvalued. Uh, so the the disparity in his valuation of Mar-a-Lago um, for investment purposes versus for tax purposes is 2,300 uh, percent. Wow. Oh, Yes. Oh, yes. Summary judgment, folks. That's what it's there for. <laughs> it is thousands of percentile Truly, differences. truly incredible. And just reading it through, it really gives you a sense of what this guy has gotten away with over the years. Let's let's put it that way. So I, I recommend it to anyone who's interested. It is uh, about 35 pages, but it is a pretty brisk read. Almost a topic for this week, we, we, should, we yes. should acknowledge, but it came out a little late, and so we were a little hesitant to add to the docket. For, for my object lesson this week, I'm going to keep those logs on rolling because I've done a lot of log rolling for myself <laughs> this episode. Uh, I have a very, very long article out in the Virginia Journal of International Law. Anybody who's interested in Taiwan, it is a deep dive into the various, I, from my view, very complicated constitutional questions raised by the U.S. policy and the prospect of the United States coming to defend Taiwan, particularly in response to an unexpected or surprise attack by China, which is a focus of a lot of policy conversation these days. It is a deep dive into history. It is the thing I've been reading all these books about Korea and Vietnam about, uh, but working on for the last few months. Uh, it is a labor of love that has grown from a 10,000-word essay into a 30,000-word law review monstrosity. But thank you to the editors there for all their hard work in helping me on that. Uh, and I think it's an interesting read. It's a lot of history. If you're really curious what Eisenhower was thinking back when he was out with the first and second Taiwan Straits crisis, which was like... Like really the closest we got to coming to war over Taiwan in the past. It's pretty interesting. And his National Security Council, the guy the guy who recorded his National Security Council affairs, did not understand what attorney-client privilege is. So there's a lot of stuff about his discussions with his lawyers and their constitutional views in these National Security Council records uh, that I kind of digested uh, and looked through for this paper, among a lot of other really interesting finds. Long history of the origins of the nature scope duration test for any war powers nerds out there. So check that out uh, if anybody is interested. I welcome any feedback or thoughts on it um, as I am actually working on a related piece as well. Uh, for later this fall. With that, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, brought to you by Lawfare. While you are at it, visit lawfaremedia.org for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series, including the aforementioned Thursday Live webcast <laughs> conversations. It's got to be really good this it's week. It's got to be really good this week. I'm really plugging it. Uh, Trump's Trials and Tribulations, uh, Eastern Time, 4 p.m., uh, live online conversation, followed up by podcast and YouTube after the fact. In addition, be sure to follow us on Twitter, slash X, at RATL Security. Oh, that was a weird one. Uh, at <laughs> RATL Security. And be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits, including that live Thursday's Trials and Tribulations conversation that I've mentioned a few times. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan, and we were once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.